This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 114th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, October 12th, and before we get into the news stories for today, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal signups. So this week, we have Abhishek Ray, Aja Pickett, Alexander Green, Austin Andrus, Daisy Chaikin, Danielle, Gunnar McKelson, Kite, Humberto Encino, Jackie McCaffrey, Justin, Caitlin Ann Turner, Nancy Goats, Ramona E. Lawson, and Tiffany J. Kim. So without a doubt, I know I butchered some of your guys' names, so I apologize in advance. But if you'd also like to support the Humanist Report, you can visit humanistreport.com support, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, we've got quite a bit. So Numiki Konst called out Hillary Clinton, and the DNC is now facing pressure to return donations they've taken from serial sexual harasser Harvey Weinstein. Joe Biden gives us an idea of the terrible campaign he will inevitably run in 2020, and I'll share Bernie Sanders' plan as to how we can actually make America great. Additionally, I'll talk about how comedians like Jimmy Fallon worship the political establishment, and on the subject of so-called comedians, I'll also talk about how Russell Brand gave Bill Maher a much-needed reality check. I'll also talk about the increasing corporatization of YouTube, and how the FCC plans to ruin the holidays for everybody. And when it comes to tech, Facebook wants to take over the internet. I'll tell you how and what they're doing. And additionally, Ro Connor had the perfect response to Dianne Feinstein's announcement that she would be seeking re-election. I'll also talk about Donald Trump's plans to decertify the Iranian nuclear deal. And when it comes to his legislative agenda, I'll talk about the enemies he's made that makes his agenda that much more difficult to pass. And on the topic of Donald Trump's administration, I'll talk about Vice President Mike Pence's shenanigans at an NFL game. And we will also talk about how the alt-right was triggered by viral marketing for a video game. And finally on this episode, I'll tell you about a brand new podcast called Establishment Exiles that just launched that I'm a part of. So all of these topics will be covered in today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and jump in. President Donald Trump just cannot stop making enemies. And it's not just like he's only making enemies on the left. He's made a lot of enemies within his own party and even in his own administration. And once tensions finally start to die down, Trump makes another idiotic comment on Twitter that just reignites the anger he caused in the first place. So an example of this came on October 4th when NBC News reported that Mike Pence had to intervene in order to prevent Secretary of State Rex Tillerson from resigning, stating tensions came to a head around the time President Donald Trump delivered a politicized speech in late July 
to the Boy Scouts of America, an organization Tillerson once led, the official said. Just days earlier, Tillerson had openly disparaged the president, referring to him as a moron <laughs> after a July 20th meeting at the Pentagon with members of Trump's national security team and cabinet officials, according to three officials familiar with the incident. Now, of course, Donald Trump called this story fake news and said it was a totally phony story. And Secretary Rex Tillerson also iterated this same sentiment, although Tillerson's denial that he called Donald Trump a moron came after initially not denying that he called Donald Trump a moron. The vice president has never had to persuade me to remain as secretary of state because I have never considered leaving this post. Let me tell you what I've learned about this president, whom I did not know before taking this office. He loves his country. He puts Americans and America first. He's smart. He demands results wherever he goes, and he holds those around him accountable for whether they've done the job he's asked them to do. Now, I don't know if you missed it, but Rex Tillerson actually told a joke midway through that speech. He's smart. He's smart. He's smart. He's not smart. <laughs> That goes without saying. I think Donald Trump is probably the dumbest president in American history. And this comes after the last Republican president we had was George W. Bush. Donald Trump takes the cake. But at least publicly, Rex Tillerson is maintaining that Donald Trump, he's a smart guy. And, you know, we all know what this is about. Rex Tillerson is saying this in order to keep the peace. But even though Donald Trump is playing it off like he wasn't offended, well, it's clear that Donald Trump was actually a little bit butthurt and may not necessarily think the story is fake news after all. Because in an interview with Forbes, he states that if Tillerson really did call him a moron, quote, I guess we'll have to compare IQ tests, and I can tell you who's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. <laughs> He's having a pissing contest now with his own Secretary of State. I mean, this is, this is joyous to watch. I, as much as I hate Donald Trump being the President, I can't deny the fact that this is entertaining. It's like watching a train wreck. You just can't look away. But luckily for Donald Trump, you know, if he really does want to challenge um, Rex Tillerson to an IQ test uh, publicly, well, I've got great news for you, Donald Trump. Mensa actually said that they would be happy to hold a testing session for President Trump and Secretary Tillerson. Now, this is according to Charles Brown, the group's communications director. Can we please make this happen? I don't know, you know, what strings we've got to pull, but I would absolutely love to see the results of a Donald Trump IQ test, certainly juxtaposed with the likes of Rex Tillerson, because even though Rex Tillerson is a pretty sleazy dude, I think that he is intelligent. Donald Trump, however, I don't think he's intelligent whatsoever. In fact, I think that he's mentally unfit to hold that office. But I mean, Rex Tillerson, in spite of him most likely calling Donald Trump a moron, you know, he, he denied it in order to keep the peace but that didn't stop Donald Trump from still basically attacking him anyway. But Secretary Rex Tillerson isn't alone here because this week we saw Donald Trump go after Republican Senator Bob Corker, who actually was in the running to have Rex Tillerson's job, and I'm sure he's glad he didn't get that job now. And Donald Trump has been going after him relentlessly, and it all started in an interview with the New York Times when Corker criticized Donald Trump, 
saying President Trump was treating his office like a reality show with reckless threats toward other countries that could set the nation on the path to World War III. Mr. Corker said he was alarmed about a president who acts like he's doing The Apprentice or something. He concerns me, Mr. Corker added. He would have to concern anyone who cares about our nation. What he's saying, I mean, you really can't disagree with it because it's true. I do feel as though Donald Trump is running this nation in a really reckless careless manner he's treating this like a reality show because that's all he knows he was a reality tv star and that's dangerous i mean you can't treat the nation like a reality tv show this isn't the apprentice this is the united states of america this is real life the apprentice fake it's a reality show so you know relatively scripted i guess but i mean this this is real life this has a real world effect on us so you can't treat it that way so i do agree with what bob corker is saying here but of course you know as all of us would have expected this triggered a pretty ruthless attack from donald trump so he states senator bob corker begged me to endorse him for re-election in tennessee i said no and he dropped out said he could not win without my endorsement he also wanted to be my secretary of state i said no thanks he is also largely responsible for the horrendous this Iran deal. Hence, I would fully expect Corker to be a negative voice and stand in the way of our great agenda. Didn't have the guts to run. Now, Corker responded by saying, it's a shame the White House has become an adult daycare center. Someone obviously missed their shift this morning. <laughs> Now, in reference to the New York Times interview where Bob Corker provoked Donald Trump with what he said with his criticism, Donald Trump is alleging that the New York Times actually tricked Bob Corker and they didn't let him know that that interview was on the record, which is why he said, you know, what he said. But really, what this is about is that Bob Corker is retiring, so now he's willing to call out and criticize Donald Trump. That's what this is about. And Bob Corker confirmed that, yeah, I knew I was being recorded. I knew that this was on the record. But nonetheless, that didn't stop Donald Trump from insisting that they fooled him. And also, of course, you know, he attacked Bob Corker because of his height. So he tweeted out, the failing New York Times set little Bob Corker up by recording his conversation, was made to sound a fool, and that's what I am dealing with. Now, the New York Times gives us some much needed context to his name, Little Bob, which is idiotic, but they state in labeling Mr. Corker little, the president was evidently returning to a theme. He considered Mr. Corker for secretary of state during the transition after last year's election, but was reported to have told associates that Mr. Corker, at five foot seven, was too short to be the nation's top diplomat. Instead, Mr. Trump picked Rex Tillerson, who is several inches taller. There were other reports about how Donald Trump was basing his decision for cabinet positions off of the level of attractiveness of people as well. And as someone who's also 5'7", fuck you, Donald Trump. Now, I'm not just covering this story because it's incredibly entertaining, <laughs> because these types of stories, you know, the politics of politics, as I would call it, it's really the junk food of news. But I, I'm covering this really, besides the entertainment value, because this actually has good implications for progressives, because... Bob Corker is widely seen as a necessary ally for Donald Trump if he wants to push his tax reform agenda through. So in making a permanent enemy out of Bob Corker, at least until his term is over, Donald Trump is crippling his own agenda. So congratulations, dumbass. You are doing our work for us. We don't even have to really resist you. But, you know, to challenge Rex Tillerson to an IQ test, to criticize Bob Corker because of his height, 
I, I don't even know what to say. Donald Trump is such an embarrassment. I feel so embarrassed to tell people that I'm an American now because Donald Trump is the president. I mean, Jesus fuck, that's <laughs> such a fucking idiot. When Donald Trump was elected, it was pretty apparent that he would be taking a wrecking ball to what little progress President Obama made. Now, when it comes to diplomacy, it's no different because President Trump will most likely be undoing one of President Obama's greatest achievements, and that is the Iran nuclear deal. So, Reuters reports, President Donald Trump is expected to announce soon that he will decertify the landmark international deal to curb Iran's nuclear program, a senior administration official said on Thursday in a step that potentially could cause the 2015 accord to unravel. Now, in decertifying the Iran nuclear deal, Donald Trump contends that he wants to do this because the deal is, quote, an embarrassment, and he also calls it the worst deal ever negotiated. Now, that's a statement that is not only idiotic and hyperbolic, but it's also wrong because this is a deal that actually is one of the best the United States has ever negotiated. But nonetheless, he also states, the Iranian regime supports terrorism and exports violence, bloodshed, and chaos across the Middle East. That is why we must put an end to Iran's continued aggression and nuclear ambitions. They have not lived up to the spirit of their agreement. We must not allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons. Well, this deal does just that. It prevents Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And we know this because the IAEA is inspecting Iran. They've allowed them to come in and make sure that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon. And I love how he states here that they haven't lived up to the spirit of the deal. Meaning, you know, they haven't overtly violated the deal like I am implying. But, you know, they just haven't lived up to the spirit of the deal. Well, what does that mean, Donald Trump? That doesn't mean anything. You can't just decertify a deal because you feel as though they don't live up to the spirit of it. So that's a bullshit excuse. And when it comes to Iran's support for terrorism, well, Donald Trump doesn't seem to have a problem with Saudi Arabia, who not only supports and exports terrorism, but is literally carrying out terrorism themselves against citizens of Yemen. In fact, Donald Trump cares so little about Saudi-induced terrorism in Yemen that he literally just recently approved the weapons deal for them to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. So not only is this a double standard when you compare Saudi Arabia and Iran and his treatment of both countries, but it's also a bullshit reason to decertify the Iran nuclear deal. So what's this really about? Well, I think that Donald Trump's hidden agenda is pretty apparent, actually. This is about war. Republicans have been wanting to invade Iran for a very long time. So in saying that they're not complying with the Iran nuclear deal, well, then you can sell to your base that, you know, maybe they're developing a nuclear weapon. And if they are developing a nuclear weapon, what's the next logical conclusion for Republicans? Well, of course, we have to go in there and invade them and make sure that they never build a nuclear weapon. We have to take out their nuclear facilities. I mean, this is about militarism. This is about the military-industrial complex profiting off of war and Donald Trump acting as a puppet to them. And in constantly attacking the Iran deal when they have no good reason to do so, when they claim they don't want Iran to get a nuclear bomb, when this stops them from getting a nuclear bomb... I mean, Republicans are just paving the way for intervention. They're incredibly transparent, and we cannot allow Donald Trump to do their bidding while pretending that, you know, he's really concerned about Iran not holding up their end of the bargain. But they are complying with the deal. 
They are holding up their end of the bargain, and we know this not because Iran tells us so. We know this because the IAEA has told us so, because they went to Iran's nuclear facilities. They've inspected, and they said, yep, they're not building a bomb. So why do Republicans like Donald Trump continuously try to vilify Iran and claim that they're not complying with this deal when clearly they are? Well, as ex-CIA analyst Paul R. Pilar puts it, one purpose of the opponents in talking so much about Iran's, quote, nefarious malign destabilizing behavior, or NMDB, is to arouse an emotional aversion to cultivate general distaste for Iran that will make people believe they will get their hands dirty by having any dealings with it. But sound foreign policy is not a matter of emotion and distaste. Many of the most important international agreements are ones reached with adversaries rather than friends, and are important precisely because they were reached with adversaries. Emotion and distaste are enemies of reason and prudence in advancing one's national interests. Opponents of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the Iran deal, also have tried to portray Iranian obligations as far more extensive than anything Tehran ever signed up to, as part of a strategy of getting people to believe contrary to repeated findings of the international inspectors who scrutinized the Iran nuclear program that Iran has been violating the agreement. But I mean, really, it goes further than what he's saying here and vilifying Iran and trying to get you to think that they're not complying with this deal. They want to invade Iran. Now, of course, you know, if Donald Trump decertifies the Iran nuclear deal and the plan unravels, it's not like we'd invade them tomorrow. I mean, this is all about paving that path towards intervention. This is what we do. We kind of plant that seed, and this is what they're doing. They're planting the seed and hoping the American people will pick up what they're putting down and that, hey, you know, Iran, even though we tried to we tried to stop them from getting a nuclear bomb. Well, they didn't listen to what we had to say. They didn't comply with the with uh, the agreement. So clearly, you know, maybe the government is justified in actually intervening and um, bombing Iran. This is these are things that we have to be mindful about, and we need to be hyper conscious of every single thing that politicians do, especially neoconservative Republicans, because they're willing to jump on any potential opportunity they can take to intervene in a country. I mean, they know that intervening in Iran, that's easier than intervening in North Korea, for example, because when you intervene in a country like Iran, you have Israel on your side, you have Saudi Arabia on your side who hates Iran because, I mean, they have, there's, there's historical, uh, you know, hatred there. You, you have Saudi Arabia, which is a Sunni state. You have Iran, which is a Shia state. So, the U.S. government, and Republicans in particular, they want this deal to fail because they want war with Iran. That's exactly what this is about. So don't let them tell you otherwise in telling you that Iran is not complying with this deal. Donald Trump is lying. And we know that he's lying because he has to say really weird, stupid phrases like they're not complying or living up to the spirit of the deal. That's fucking horse shit. Yes, they're complying, and again, we know this not because of what Iran tells us, but because of what the IAEA tells us. International inspectors tell us that they're living up to and complying with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and we should not trust our bloodthirsty leaders like Donald Trump. We should trust international inspectors that don't have anything to gain from lying to us about this.
Okay, we've got to establish something once and for all in this podcast. If you are a right-wing Donald Trump supporter, you no longer get to complain about people getting offended too easily over things because what you Trump flakes don't realize is that your favorite guy in the world, Donald Trump, along with his vice president, they get offended not only by everything, but they actually go out of their way to find things to be offended about. So on Sunday, Vice President Mike Pence and his wife were at the Lucas Oil Stadium to cheer on the Colts. But this snowflake ultimately decided to leave because he was offended, saying, quote, I left today's Colts game because POTUS and I will not dignify any event that disrespects our soldiers, our flag, or our national anthem. So let me get this straight. Mike Pence went to a football game knowing damn well that there was a good chance that some of the NFL players would kneel during the national anthem and knowing that that would offend him, he still decided to go anyway. So in other words, he actively put himself in a situation to where he would be triggered and he knew he would be triggered so that way he could take to social media and complain about it. That is what I like to call a snowflake because these anti-PC police right-wingers are just as triggered as the people they typically rail against. Now, it became pretty clear that this entire event was staged. And I actually feel a little bit apprehensive about using the term staged because I don't want to sound like Alex Jones, but I mean, we have really good reason to believe that this was a pre-planned event because Donald Trump took to Twitter to state, I asked Vice President Pence to leave the stadium if any players kneeled, disrespecting our country. I am proud of him and Second Lady Karen. So in other words, Mike Pence wanted to go so that way he could be offended and then complain about how offended he was on social media. Now, I don't understand, <laughs> but besides this being, you know, a mindless occurrence and just a dumb thing to do, I mean, I really don't know what would possess him to fly to a different state to see this game. You know, this little public stunt that he pulled, it did come with a cost specifically to you, the taxpayer, because according to Allura Nanos of Law News, she reports that Vice President Mike Pence appears to have spent more than 200000 in travel funds yesterday so that he could leave a football game and pronounce himself the ultimate patriot. The real absurdity is our White House wasting both our money and its influence to strengthen ties with the base who already loves it. That's right, Trump lovers, you are being used, and we're all paying for it. At the center of it all is our spotlight-seeking sycophant-at-arms, Mike Pence. Pence is a lot of things, but he's definitely not stupid. Wasteful, opportunistic, a total sellout? Maybe. Stupid? No. He saw a chance to make headlines for himself, and he jumped at it, probably humming 2024 all the while. Pence likely calculated the risks and concluded that the only people who would call him out for play-acting and on-the-spot decision to exit were those who already hate him. Hell, I don't even watch football, and I knew the kneeling would be happening yesterday. Obviously, the vice president planned his little pretend-to-attend charade with full knowledge that it would require an early exit. He even made sure to alert the press pool so that his foot stomping could be captured in living color. Now, a tweet from Vaughn Hilliard of NBC News verifies this because he states, As media pool has been made aware, a staffer told pool that vice president may depart the game early, did not indicate how early. Unbelievable. So this, this stupid staged event, it cost $200,000 to the taxpayer to fly him out there 
to, um, you know, fly Secret Service out there and pay them for their services and fly him back. $200,000. When they knew that players would kneel and they would get offended, but this was a publicity stunt. So they literally sought out an event that they knew would offend them for publicity. So if that doesn't tell you that Mike Pence and Donald Trump are a bunch of snowflakes, then I don't know what else will. Because even though Republicans like Donald Trump like to rail against PC police and contend that, you know, everyone in this country, they just get offended too easily. Well, they're a main part of that problem. Right-wingers are just as easily triggered and outraged as kids on college campuses. It's true. I know that people don't like to admit this fact because, you know, it's easier to call out PC police and SJWs right now on YouTube because that's the popular thing to do that gets you views and clicks. But in actuality, the real triggered snowflakes in this country, it's always been the right. It's always been evangelical Christians. It's always been right-wingers. And you can really, you can see this because anytime I have any videos criticizing Donald Trump, look at the comments. It's all these Trump flakes who are triggered. They just can't stand to see him being criticized. And it's not like I'm criticizing him for arbitrary reasons. I'm criticizing Donald Trump, usually based on his own words or things that he did. So, you know, I, I'm just so sick of the hypocrisy. I'm sick of the double standard. Yes, SJWs on the left are certainly a problem. I don't approve of anything the authoritarian left does. I think that college campuses should allow speakers that they disagree with to come and speak to them. But I also think that we need to be consistent here and call out the SJWs on the right, social injustice warriors, as many people are now calling them, because it's not it's not okay to focus on just the left, even though that's the popular thing to do right now. The right-wingers are the biggest snowflakes ever, and the level of hypocrisy I continue to see for all these people like Dave Rubin, it makes me so angry. So look, call a spade a spade. Donald Trump and Mike Pence, they're a bunch of snowflakes, and the fact that they staged this event shows that they may be more snowflakier than the most snowflakiest snowflake. <laughs> I've got a quick update for you guys regarding net neutrality. So by now, many of us had expected the FCC to have already voted to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. But they announced recently that they would not be holding a vote in October. So for whatever reason, it seems as though the FCC is stalling. And there's a very specific reason for that that's, that's pretty insidious. So according to Popular Resistance, they report, We just learned that the FCC will not vote on taking net neutrality away in October, which means it will likely be on the agenda in November or December. This is the time of year when folks in Washington, D.C. do their dirty work because they think everyone is full of turkey or busy consuming for the holidays. So understand what's happening here. Knowing that gutting net neutrality would be a really unpopular thing to do and knowing that they are going to do that anyway in defiance of the American people, they're choosing a time when we're all going to be preoccupied spending time with our family. The holidays. So they're going to presumably vote to kill net neutrality when the least amount of people will be paying attention. How despicable. Ajit Pai is the Grinch. He's the Grinch. Fucking up the holidays for everyone. Thank you, Ajit Pai and the FCC. Michael O'Reilly is the other Republican commissioner who will most likely vote well, most likely, he'll, who will most definitely vote with Ajit Pai. 
this is really disgusting, right? They know how unpopular it is. So we've communicated our message to them loud and clear, but they're, they're going to do it anyway. And they're just maneuvering to make it so that way they receive as little resistance as possible when they do vote to kill off net neutrality. This doesn't even anger me. It just it's just depressing. It's just sad because this is obviously a good time to do something really unpopular. I mean, yeah, I would really like to spend time with my family during the holidays. A lot of people would, but instead we've got to be fighting. So popular resistance, they are going to be fighting. They're not backing down and they're actually organizing a protest in DC, regardless if it's the holiday season or not. But obviously, you know, if this does occur during winter break, for example, if you're a college student, you're not going to want to go to D.C. You're going to want to go and spend time with your family. So to anyone who's a true patriot who was able to make it out, thank you so much. But I mean, everyone else who can't make it to D.C., which is the vast majority of us, we've still got to take the time out of our holiday. I mean, I doubt it'll be on Christmas or Thanksgiving, but you never know. We've still got to take the time out of our day to call the FCC and communicate to them just how angered we are and look this isn't just new with the fcc you know and trying to bury bad news trump does it too he typically makes announcements on fridays because they think you know nobody's going to be paying attention and it, it works it's an effective tactic but i don't give a fuck if it's christmas thanksgiving halloween i'm not gonna let the fcc get away with this so if you think you're going to kill off net neutrality and we're not going to pay attention and we'll be preoccupied we're still going to celebrate, but we're still also going to come after you and call you up and let you know exactly how we feel and still tweet to you. So look, before it's too late, I mean, the stalling, it gives us more time to at least tweet at Ajit Pai, tweet at the FCC, you know, um, email them and let them know that this is not acceptable. They need to leave the internet alone. So as you all know this week, it came out that a Hollywood bigwig, Harvey Weinstein, is actually a serial sexual harasser. I don't I don't understand why there are so many famous people with a lot of money who feel the need to treat women like garbage. It it makes no sense to me, but nonetheless, you know, that's the reality. Harvey Weinstein is a serial sexual harasser. Now, the reason why I'm talking about him is because this actually is tied to politics because he was also someone who contributed heavily to the Democratic Party. And now as a result of the Democratic Party's association with him, a lot of Democrats are doing everything they can to distance themselves from him and rightfully so. But the DNC... They're not. So according to Michael Sonato of The Observer, he reports in response to the New York Times explosive revelations that film producer and executive Harvey Weinstein has a long record of sexual harassment, the Republican National Committee publicly called on Democrats to return the thousands of dollars in campaign donations they have received from Weinstein. The RNC cited that Weinstein has given around 300000 to the DNC and over $1.2 to Democratic politicians and political groups over the last three decades. Several Democratic senators who received money from Weinstein, including Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, have announced that they are donating the money they received from Weinstein to charity. So, for the most part, Democrats are doing the right thing on an individual level. But when it comes to the money that this pervert donated to the DNC, the $300,000 that he donated to the DNC, what are they choosing to do? Well, for the most part, they're keeping this money. 
They are literally keeping 90% of it at this point. You know, there hasn't been any updates, but I'll put them on the screen if there is an update. But they're donating $30,000 to political groups that do what the DNC does, help Democrats get elected. So according to Jonathan Eastley of The Hill, the DNC said it will donate the 30000 it received from him in the last campaign cycle to Emily's List, which supports women candidates that support abortion rights, Emerge America, which recruits and trains Democratic women for office, and Higher Heights, which supports black women running for office. The DNC said it chose the three groups because what we need is more women in power, not men like President Trump who continue to show us that they lack respect for more than half of America. In other words, the money that Harvey Weinstein gave the DNC to help get Democrats elected will still be used to help get Democrats elected. Now, the problem with this is that what they're doing is hiding behind women and they're still keeping 90% of the money that they took from this pervert. But what little money that they're, quote, donating, they're putting it back into Democratic Party causes when really it should be taken out of political causes because Harvey Weinstein is a pervert. He should have no influence on politics whatsoever, which is why Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Elizabeth Warren chose to do the right thing. Now, if you really want to help women, imagine what DomesticShelters.org could do with $300,000 or hell, even $30,000. And furthermore, if you really want to help Democrats get elected and you want to help female Democrats get elected, then you want to know another organization that you could donate this to. It would still be political, but it'd be better. You could donate this to Justice Democrats because they have a lot of female candidates. Amy Valela, Cori Bush, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's just a couple of them. Paula Jean Swearingen. I mean, there's a lot. So they don't really care about women or getting women elected. They're hiding behind women here and they're trying to make it seem as though by keeping this money, you know, it's not that bad when really you're only donating 10% of your money and you're keeping the rest of it. I mean, why is it that no matter what, no matter how dirty and disgusting the donor is, the DNC insists on taking their money. I mean, after Haim Saban smeared Keith Ellison, arbitrarily so, and called him an anti-Semite, you know, they still are allowing him to have an influence on the party. Keith Ellison was forced, you know, I guess probably not on his own accord, but he was forced to make up with Haim Saban. One part I will say in defense of the DNC is that I don't, I don't approve of the RNC because they take money from the most egregious figures in all of American politics. I mean, they are filled with shills for the NRA. They're filled with shills for the military industrial complex. So their money also supports death and destruction. So the RNC should also give back all of their bad political contributions and the DNC, you know, don't stop at Harvey Weinstein. Give back all the money you took from Wall Street. Give back all the money you took from the military industrial complex. This is why we need to get money out of politics. This is why we need a constitutional amendment to not only overturn Citizens United, but ensure that we publicly finance every single political race in this country. It's because... Really disgusting figures have a disproportionate, a disproportionate level of influence in this country just because they have money. Our campaign finance system allows egregious, despicable figures like Harvey Weinstein to have a say when people who are actually well-intentioned, who are altruistic, don't have that same voice. So again, 
I'm going to allow the DNC some time and I'll, I'll put an update on the screen if they choose to do the right thing and donate the rest of that money, but it doesn't look like they're going to do the right thing. And this is no surprise. You know, it's business as usual for the DNC and seeing that they're already short on money and they've had pretty low fundraising months, you know, um, in 2017, I think the last time they had fundraising this bad was in 2003. You know, they're going to keep every dollar they can get. And this is because Tom Perez knows he's got to make cash quick. Otherwise, he's going to be forced to resign from, you know, the elites in the party. So, you know, it's despicable. It shows you that the DNC, they don't really care about their principles. They continuously claim how, you know, they're principled and they stand up for their values when they, they represent nothing. They represent absolutely nothing, just platitudes. That's it. Fellow progressive Namiki Konst was on Fox News to call out Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is obviously, as we all know, an oligarch who likes to pretend as though she's part of the so-called resistance, but when it comes down to it, she's not really resisting Donald Trump. All she's doing is going on a book tour, she's playing the blame game, complaining about Bernie Sanders supporters, and what Namiki Konst was trying to communicate to Hillary Clinton was that if you're going to claim to be part of the resistance, then actually resist Donald Trump. Call him out when he does illegal military strikes on a Syrian airfield. But Hillary Clinton isn't doing that. So I'll let Nomiki Kantz explain what she said to Hillary Clinton. I believe in the First Amendment, and I believe that everybody who has a megaphone should be able to use it for the things that they believe in. Uh, this person is is the former leader of the Democratic Party, and if she really believes that Donald Trump is a bad leader, I, I encourage her to show up on the streets with the rest of us who are fighting for, for a $15 minimum wage, for fighting for Medicare for all, who are fighting, who are actually in the resistance, rather than going on the book tour, complaining about Bernie Sanders supporters, because that's all I heard the past three weeks, and then throwing one thing in about Donald Trump. But show up, I mean, go for it. Use your megaphone. I believe that she has the right to do that. Just follow your words and actually do it. So everything that Nomiki Khan said there was a message that Hillary Clinton desperately needed to hear because Hillary Clinton, she surrounds herself by yes men and yes women who reinforce everything that she does, even if it's harmful and further divides an already fractured Democratic Party, when in actuality, if she really wants to help out, she needs to stop being a divisive figure. She needs to stop bashing Bernie Sanders and his supporters and do what she can to help further the cause when it comes to a lot of progressive issues like Medicare for All and tuition-free public colleges and universities. But before I talk about what Numiki Khan said specifically and the backlash that ensued after she made that remark, I do want to address a criticism that progressives often hear when we talk about Hillary Clinton in particular. So we're often criticized for being hypocritical because in one instance, you'll see a lot of progressives telling Hillary Clinton that she needs to speak up and fight against Donald Trump. But in another instance, you'll see a different set of progressives say that, you know, she should go away and not say anything. So neoliberals will contend, well, you know, which is it? Do you want her to go away or do you want her to speak up and fight on behalf of your issues? Now, at face value, I do understand how this makes us seem hypocritical, but this is the result of different progressives saying different things. Progressives don't function like a hive mind, like Hillary Clinton's supporters. Some progressives want Hillary Clinton to use her power and influence to fight Donald Trump and stop his harmful agenda, whereas other progressives want Hillary Clinton to just go away because we don't trust that she could do anything that's beneficial to the progressive movement. Now, I myself, I, I think I'm in the latter camp. I don't think Hillary Clinton is a useful ally, so I think she should just go away. Now, in theory, 
I would like someone as powerful as Hillary Clinton to stand up against Donald Trump, but I mean, she's not interested in stopping Donald Trump's agenda for altruistic reasons. Hillary Clinton only speaks out against Donald Trump as a means of bolstering her own popularity. And like Namiki Kantz was saying in the clip, the problem with Hillary Clinton is that she's claiming to be part of the resistance, but she's not actually doing anything to resist Trump in a meaningful way. So if you're going to claim to be part of the resistance, then you actually need to resist like you say you are. But Hillary Clinton hasn't been doing that at all. She, She's inflicted enough damage on the country by trying to prop up and legitimize Donald Trump with her pie Piper strategy, which backfired tremendously, that she's got to go away. She's got to let us heal. But other progressives think that she needs to certainly do more to stop Donald Trump. And anything that she's done so far, I mean, she set up a super PAC in order to keep Democrats dependent on corporate money. So, I mean, she doesn't really care about resisting Donald Trump. And that's the point that Namiki Kantz is trying to convey here. She's trying to communicate to Hillary Clinton that you don't get to claim to be part of the resistance if you're not actually going to resist Donald Trump. Now, Fox News tweeted out a clip of this segment with a quote from Kantz, and this prompted a response from Hillary Clinton's number one fan, Peter Dow. He asks, enlighten me, Twitter, what has Namiki Kantz done in her life to earn the right to condescend to Hillary Clinton on Fox News, no less. First and foremost, Peter, what have you done in your life to earn the right to condescend to Namiki Konst? You're not better than Namiki Konst, neither is Hillary Clinton. I know that because Hillary Clinton is a multimillionaire, that might make people think that she's better than ordinary Americans, but she's not. I know that because you worship Hillary Clinton, you just think she's inherently better than other Americans. But Peter, just because you're such a Hillary worshiper and you've drunk the Kool-Aid and you would literally probably bottle up the smell of her anus to keep in your pocket just because you love her that much, that doesn't mean everyone else feels the same way about Hillary Clinton. So yes, we can criticize her because she's a public figure. She chose to be a public figure. She chose to put herself out there. And as a political figure who has the the power and influence over a lot of our lives, I think we have the right to criticize Hillary Clinton and we should criticize Hillary Clinton so long as she's going to influence American politics. Now, Namiki Kantz, I mean, she's one of the best journalists in this country and unlike you, she's actually fighting for progressive policy issues while you continue to attack progressives on Twitter. And unlike you, Peter, she actually has credibility. People on her own side take her seriously, but people in your own establishment elitist circles view you as a joke. They don't think you're a serious person because you're not. What Numiki Khan said was really important, and Hillary Clinton needed to hear that message because when she does attack Bernie Sanders and his supporters, I think that's really harmful. Now, what Numiki Khan said, it was true. It doesn't matter if it was on Fox News or not. So on behalf of all of us, Thank you, Namiki. Just ignore the haters. Peter Dow is a lunatic and nobody takes him seriously. So Hillary Clinton made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and he dedicated six minutes to allow his female writers of the show to come out and thank Hillary Clinton for being a role model to them. And there was also a surprise appearance by Miley Cyrus. Now, unfortunately, I can't play the full segment for you, but I do have a short 10-second clip, and I assure you that that is more than enough for you to grasp the totality of its ridiculousness. Take a look. Thank you, Thank you, Hillary, for being a constant beacon of strength, hope, and determination for me and millions of other young women. <laughs> yeah, that was a really pathetic clip. 
because you have minutes of airtime, six minutes specifically, which is a lot, dedicated to an oligarch that propped up Donald Trump and ultimately gave us Donald Trump with her Pied Piper strategy for her own narcissistic reasons. This is someone that's so selfish that she gambled with the lives of millions of Americans by colluding with the DNC to rig the primary against a candidate that would have ultimately defeated Donald Trump. So needless to say, I have a lot of problems with that particular clip, but if you watched that clip and got angry, don't be angry because if you are angered by that clip, then you're giving Peter Dow exactly what he wants because he tweeted out, you can just feel the haters consumed by rage when they watch this. But Peter, it's not that we're consumed with rage. We're consumed with embarrassment and shame. And this clip is shameful because it idolized a neoliberal warmonger that pushed for policies that catalyzed death and destruction in the Middle East and North Africa. I mean, the policy she lobbied for catalyzed mass incarceration for people of color. So thanking Hillary Clinton for her self-serving career where she represented nobody but herself and her Wall Street donors, I think that's embarrassing. So I'm not angered by it, Peter. I'm embarrassed. But believe it or not, my goal in talking about this clip wasn't to harp on Hillary Clinton because I've done that. I've spent countless hours telling you all the problems I have with Hillary Clinton. But what I really wanted to talk about is how so-called comedians prop up the political establishment in the United States. And Jimmy Fallon is probably the number one offender of this. So it's not like he just worships Hillary Clinton, as you might have gathered from this clip, but he worships the establishment in general. He practically begged Chris Christie to tell him whether or not he'd be running for president and was seemingly excited about the prospect of Chris Christie running. And he brought Obama on multiple times, which isn't really surprising because Obama did go on a lot of late night shows. But one clip in particular stood out because he literally helped Obama sell the Trans-Pacific Partnership to the American people. Are you saying you're down with TPP? Yeah, you know me. So it's not as though, you know, these are harmless appearances where Jimmy Fallon has these politicians on to joke with him. I mean, he's literally pushing their agenda. And it doesn't matter, you know, what that agenda is. As long as it's the agenda promoted by the political establishment and the status quo, then Jimmy Fallon is all over it. So I think it's important that people know that underneath all of the fake laughter and the desk slapping that you see from Jimmy Fallon and all the contrived brainless dialogue is a really harmful pro-establishment agenda. And Jimmy Fallon isn't alone, even though he may be the worst when it comes to promoting the establishment, because Jimmy Kimmel also tends to get political every now and then. But his commentary on American politics, I mean, it never passes the bounds of what the elite class feels is appropriate. He never ventures outside the Overton window. So when he talks about, for example, healthcare, he talked about healthcare with his kid. He never brings up Medicare for all. He talks about it in the confines of defending the Affordable Care Act as if that would be sufficient when there are 30 million people in the country that are left out. So when you talk about these sorts of things, like I'm glad that Jimmy Kimmel is drawing attention to issues like, you know, gun violence and healthcare, but he only discusses it so long as it is appropriate in the context of mainstream American political dialogue. He won't actually call for Medicare for all. Now, I don't necessarily know that he is, you know, consciously promoting the establishment's agenda. Maybe he doesn't know about Medicare for all, but certainly, you know, 
The problem with these so-called comedians is they only prop up the status quo, and the same is true for Samantha Bee and Trevor Noah, and of course Bill Maher, where they don't necessarily prop up the entire political status quo, but they certainly prop up the Democratic Party establishment, which is also very problematic. I mean, what we're effectively seeing is pro-establishment propaganda disguised as late-night comedy, which is really problematic because it promotes this idea subconsciously that the establishment is good no matter what. If someone in Congress or a governor tells you something, then you should accept it because they are part of the establishment and the establishment is inherently good because the establishment is mainstream, because the establishment is in power. And it all just has this Orwellian feel to it that just, it doesn't sit right with me. Now, I don't want to be accused of promoting conspiracy theories about how Jimmy Fallon has meetings behind closed doors with Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump about how to promote the oligarchy's agenda, but what I am encouraging you to do is to be a responsible consumer of media. When you watch something, certainly something on television, you need to question it. You need to question their motives, uh, regardless if those motives are conscious or subconscious. You need to question whether or not politicians are using comedy as a means of promoting their pro-corporate agenda because it's hidden it's subtle and that certainly means that you need to apply the same level of scrutiny to independent media progressives too i mean i want you to scrutinize me and hold me to a high standard as well we have to be responsible consumers of media we can't censor jimmy fallon we can't censor people on youtube we just have to be responsible and know sometimes people have a hidden agenda maybe it's subconscious when jimmy fallon does it but certainly when chris christie and obama go on that show he has an agenda he tried to promote the tpp we have chris christie trying to prop up his presidential campaign we have him thanking hillary clinton as if she was an altruistic figure when she's a self-serving narcissist. I mean, we have to question their motives. We have to question what establishment media, you know, is doing. So that's that's the takeaway. I just want people to be mindful of what's going on and not allow a hidden political agenda to slip through the cracks under the guise of comedy because that's very harmful. I think that we need to be aware of propaganda uh, no matter in what form it takes. Republican Senator Dianne Feinstein, I mean, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, sorry, you know, it's it's difficult to remember what her party affiliation is because she acts so much like a Republican, but anyways, she decided to announce via Twitter that she is seeking a sixth term as a United States Senator, saying, I am running for re-election to the Senate, lots more to do, ending gun violence, combating climate change, access to healthcare, I'm all in. And in response, the internet collectively said, fuck. <laughs> because this is California. We can do a lot better than Dianne Feinstein, can't we, California? She's basically a Republican. I don't even know why she hasn't changed parties yet. You know, a lot of people say that she is a Democrat because she really speaks out unequivocally in favor of gun reform, but the only reason why she does this is because she doesn't take money from the NRA. <laughs> so in the one area where she's not sold out to the interests of special interests, she can be bold. But, you know, when it comes to universal health care, Medicare for all, well, she doesn't like Medicare for all because she doesn't support a government takeover. 
And yes, if you were wondering whether or not that was a Republican talking point, it is. And that is something that Dianne Feinstein said at a town hall this year. So, you know, as usual, people from California, particularly the politicians from California, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, they all came out to immediately endorse her. However, another Californian politician, a Democrat, Ro Khanna, he actually had something a little bit different to say about Dianne Feinstein's decision to run for re-election. He said, Feinstein is out of touch with the grassroots of our party on economic policy and foreign policy. After 47 years in elected office and 25 years in the Senate, she continues to cling to office as a voice for the status quo. The fact that the establishment is rallying around her re-election shows that DC insiders continue to privilege protecting one of their own over the voters' concerns. How many times will voters have to demand change before we listen? So, Ro Khanna, you know, in criticizing a fellow Democrat from California, his home state, I think this is incredibly brave and bold. Now, I would love for Ro Khanna to also speak out against Nancy Pelosi, but nonetheless, I'll take a victory where I, can, where I can get it. And him speaking out against Dianne Feinstein is fantastic because everything he's saying here is absolutely true. Dianne Feinstein is not in touch with the grassroots. In fact, she is an obstacle to progress because she is stopping us from getting a single-payer healthcare system. I mean, and not co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill and not actively fighting with grassroots activists. You know, if you're not with us, you're against us. And I hate to, you know, speak in absolute terms like this, but it's it's true when it comes to issues like Medicare for All, when we need all the allies we can get. But the thing about Dianne Feinstein is that she knows that she's out of touch, but even if she knows that people don't like her and they're disenchanted with her centrist and right-wing policies, she doesn't even care if she faces a primary challenger to the left of her saying, I am what I am, I'm pretty well known, and people, I assume, will come after me any way they can. That's up to them. In other words, I know that people don't like me because I'm out of touch, I don't represent progressives, and I'm basically a Republican with a D in front of my name, but, you know, if you want to primary me, uh, I welcome that primary challenge because you're not going to beat me because I take millions of dollars from large multinational corporations. And if you really want to go up against me, I'm a behemoth. So try it. Bring it on. You're not going to defeat me. So I'm going to be here forever. And if you don't like the fact that I don't represent you, then too fucking bad. That's effectively what she's saying here. Now, Dianne Feinstein is actually being challenged by a true progressive named David Hillebrand. He supports single-payer, he supports campaign finance reform, he supports net neutrality, prison reform, and he's basically a younger version of Bernie Sanders. So if you do want to learn how to support his campaign and hopefully defeat Dianne Feinstein and finally kick her out of Congress once and for all, you can go to davidforcalifornia.com. But these politicians who refuse to retire when they have no interest in representing ordinary Americans... I mean, why did you run? Why would you continue to be there if you have no desire to represent the American people? I mean, one seat in the Senate, that's really significant. You could do a lot. But Dianne Feinstein, she chooses not to do anything for progressives. What little progress, you know, she advocates for when it comes to gun reform and defending the ACA, she is a barrier to progress when it comes to a whole nother front of issues. So Diane's got to go. We have to primary her. David's got to beat her. And we've got to kick her ass out of Congress because she's not going to represent us.
There's a special election going on in Alabama currently to fill Jeff Sessions' open seat. And as you all know, Jeff Sessions became Trump's attorney general. So we have a race between Doug Jones, a centrist Democrat, and Roy Moore, a right-wing extremist Republican who is... He's just a lunatic. I don't know how else to describe Roy Moore. But currently, Joe Biden has been in Alabama stumping for Doug Jones. And in trying to rally the base and galvanize them to get them to come out and vote for Doug Jones, we're getting a snapshot as to the type of campaign Joe Biden will probably run in 2020. And it's not pretty. So The Hill explains, stumping for Democratic Senate nominee Doug Jones, Biden said the former U.S. attorney grasps fairness when it comes to the issue of taxes. Doug understands about tax fairness, Biden told the crowd. Guys, the wealthy are as patriotic as the poor. I know Bernie doesn't like me saying that, but they are. So clearly, this is an attempt by Joe Biden to pander to people in Alabama by invoking Bernie Sanders. He's really trying to separate Doug Jones from the Bernie wing of the party and saying, look, I know that you guys are more conservative. Doug Jones is not like Bernie Sanders. Doug Jones, you know, he actually might support Donald Trump's tax reform that just gives tax cuts to the wealthy. And in even saying something so stupid that, you know, uh, I know Bernie doesn't like it when I say this, but the rich are just as patriotic as the poor. You wouldn't say something like that unless you're trying to pander to people who think that tax cuts for the rich are beneficial. But what Joe Biden doesn't realize is that he's not going to get conservatives in Alabama to come out and support Doug Jones. They're already going to vote for Roy Moore. But what he's not going to do in saying something idiotic like that is encourage left-wingers in Alabama to come out and vote for Doug Jones because why would they come out and vote for Doug Jones if Roy Moore is going to do the same thing policy-wise as Roy Moore? So you need to give them a reason to vote for you, especially in these really red states. But Joe Biden, he's pandering and he thinks that this is what's going to help Doug Jones get elected. But if anything, Joe Biden is hurting Doug Jones here. Now, the thing about Joe Biden is that he doesn't like progressives. He thinks that, you know, people like Bernie Sanders, they're just too firebrand and they don't like compromise. And that's something that Joe Biden looks down upon. He does think that you should be compromising. He said that today it takes more courage to engage in compromise to achieve consensus on both sides. And distancing himself gently from his own side, he noted that the left came after me because I didn't insist on everything in raising taxes on the wealthy. But you see, Joe Biden, you did compromise. You compromised when you had a supermajority and you and Obama gave us the Affordable Care Act. Now, that's better than nothing. But when you had the chance to actually implement single payer... Why didn't you at least give it a try? I mean, you started at a public option and then we got negotiated down to the Affordable Care Act. So you gave the Republicans what they wanted. You codified their health care plan into law. I mean, the ACA, that's something that was thought up by the Heritage Foundation. So you can't tell us that it really takes bravery to compromise in this partisan political climate. Democrats, they don't get to use that term compromise because they don't know what it means. To Democrats, it just means roll over and die, give the Republicans everything that they want. That's what compromise means to Democrats. So the point here is to imply that Doug Jones would be willing to compromise with Republicans. And this is a way to hopefully get people in this conservative state to come out and vote for Doug Jones over Roy Moore. But in another attempt to pander, Joe Biden stated, 
I've been around so long, I worked with James Eastland, said Biden, referring to a segregationist senator from Mississippi. Even in the days when I got there, the Democratic Party still had seven or eight old-fashioned Democratic segregationists. You'd get up and you'd argue like the devil with them. Then you'd go down and have lunch for dinner together. The political system worked. We were divided on issues, but the political system worked. Well, first of all, you're not acknowledging the presence of money in politics in this current political climate and how Republicans and Democrats, you know, there's this hyper-partisanship because, one, the Republican Party has moved so far to the right, but two, it's because you have competing special interests who are lobbying and basically threatening to withhold campaign contributions if they don't get their legislative agenda passed. So that's why you really see this hyper-partisanship. And the fact that you got along with segregationists, that's not anything you want to boast about. You should have told them to go fuck themselves. If you're honestly trying to tell me that you're proud that Democrats worked with people in their own party that were segregationists who thought that people of color were not good enough to share water fountains with white people, then that's embarrassing. You I mean, this is a level of pandering that's ridiculous because he's in Alabama, so he's thinking, well, maybe if there's some people who are in favor of segregation still in 2017, maybe we'll get them to come over and support Doug Jones. But they're not going to support Doug Jones. They know you're pandering, and we all know you're pandering. And overall, the point in talking about Joe Biden is because I think that out of all the 2020 presidential candidates, he's the one that poses the biggest threat to Bernie Sanders. And what he's doing here in pandering to people in Alabama He's giving us a snapshot as to the shitty campaign that he's going to run in 2020. We don't like disingenuous politicians. We know you're pandering. We, we know that you're trying to do and say everything possible to get Doug Jones elected. But by moving to the right, by making him be more centrist, you are handicapping his campaign because you are communicating to left-wing voters, potential left-wing voters who might otherwise come out to support Doug Jones in Alabama, that... Maybe they should stay home because he's not going to be much different than the Republican. But I mean, Doug Jones is running against Roy Moore. He literally thinks that homosexuality should be illegal. Can you not differentiate yourself by saying that you're not an extremist lunatic like him? I mean, I just don't understand how Democrats think pandering is going to be an effective political strategy. You've pandered and it's failed you every single time in the South and in red states, why don't you just try something new? Try being a progressive. We had Randall Woodfin win in a deep red state. He's now the mayor. He's a progressive. He was endorsed by our revolution. And guess what? He won. But Democrats continue to move to the right because they think that's going to be electorally viable. And really, this isn't about Doug Jones in my mind because probably he's not going to win. He's not going to win. He's just not a very inspiring candidate. And this is Alabama. It is a deep red state. So you need your base more than ever here. And the Democratic Party has chosen to go after conservative voters instead of their own left-wing base. So we know exactly what type of campaign Joe Biden is going to run here. A campaign just like Hillary Clinton, where you pander to different sets of voters at different times. But that's not going to work. We don't need another Hillary Clinton. We need a, another Bernie Sanders. And that's why I want to talk about this because Joe Biden scares me. You know, in 2016, if you ran, him and Hillary probably would have split the votes between establishment voters, people who support the establishment, and that would have allowed Bernie Sanders to coast to victory, even in a rigged primary. But in 2016, if you just have all of the former Hillary Clinton voters and pro-establishment voters lining up behind Joe Biden, he's actually a threat to Bernie Sanders. 
which is scary to me. So we've got to watch him. And, you know, we don't we don't need to anticipate what type of campaign he's going to be running because we're already seeing it right now. He's going to tell you one thing and tell other voters another thing. He's not going to be genuine. So over the last couple of months, myself, along with other progressives, have been really disappointed with Bill Maher's show, to say the least, because he's been doing something that I like to call rich-splaining, where you talk down condescendingly to ordinary Americans, and you tell them that you're right and they're wrong when you refuse to listen to anything that they have to say. So for example, he tells us that we should have voted for Hillary Clinton, and those of us who were too puritanical and didn't think Hillary Clinton was good enough, well, he says that we should go fuck ourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber. I know you all remember that. So what he's doing, it's harmful because he's shifting the blame that politicians should have when they lose onto voters. And he's saying, if the politician loses, well, it's not because they ran a terrible campaign like Hillary Clinton. It was because you failed the politicians. So after months of rich splaining and talking down to progressives, he finally had someone on his show that gave him a taste of his own medicine. So Russell Brand was on the show and Bill Maher asked him what he thought about Hillary Clinton. And as someone who typically advocates against voting altogether, unless a politician offers voters something, Bill Maher didn't really like what Russell Brand had to say. You have had reservations, you have expressed reservations about voting itself. Where are you on voting now? Well, Bill, I think that <laughs> the dominant political parties have a real obligation, as Harold was just explaining, to present the voters, by which I mean human beings like me, real <laughs> vision, real possibilities, and to transcend the idea that they are merely managers of bureaucracies whose role it is to prevent us being, hmm, I suppose, uh, bludgeoned by lunatics, like the current one. So, uh, I, I feel that what we... But you would agree that it would be better if people had voted for Hillary Clinton, right? Yes, I, I, I wondered if Come you would on, ask me that. Come on, please. Well, look, we're, we're getting along so good. Do you so think, good. like... <laughs> if Hillary Clinton would not be pulling out of the Iran deal or the Paris climate deal or... It's really... You know I respect you and I admire you very much and I think you're a courageous man. One of the problems I have in instances such as this is that politics became so centralised, realistic opportunities weren't offered to ordinary people, and when a candidate like Bernie Sanders emerged, he was not given the opportunities that he deserved. I never voted in my country. What do you mean he was not given the opportunities? There was a he, he was given every opportunity. He ran in America. People voted for him, not as many as Hillary. I wonder why this occurs. Because I mean, you're talking now about the manipulation of boundaries and borders and, and the way that certain political but, okay. figures are managed towards but, positions can of power I, and authority. That exists at a party political can, can level. I, can I, the Democratic Party had preferences. Their preference was Hillary. You got Hillary. Hillary lost. And we... And I, I, I don't think that... This is not... I'm, I think you can tell from a glance that I'm, like, not a Donald Trump guy. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying to come to common ground with you. I just, oh, let me give you one example from, yes, the, from this week. While all the craziness was going on, yeah. the Republicans did not reauthorize a program called CHIPS, Children's Health Insurance yes. Program. Appalling. Yes, you know of it. Okay, it's been there for 20 years, bipartisan. Nine million kids now are not going to get, 
you know, what they need, the doctor visits, checkups. Yes, this is true. So I think for those people, voting matters. You are quite it's right. E it's easy to say, oh, voting yeah. and who can, they're all bad, but the, for those people downstream, it would have mattered if he didn't, wasn't president. I entirely recognise. I had a okay. comparable problem in our country because I'd advocated not voting. I said, well, don't vote until they give you realistic... Are realistic opportunities until there are politicians that speak directly to you, that speak for ordinary working people. Until then, why would you participate in this spectacle? You're being invited to participate in something that doesn't offer you realistic opportunities. The candidate for the left at that time was, uh, in the, I would say, a comparable candidate, someone that was a neoliberal, centralist politician that didn't oppose the corporate interests and elite interests. This allowed hegemony to continue. Now, I think that if the left doesn't, isn't brave enough to occupy the space where ordinary people whose lives are in difficulty and in tr trouble, if, if a politician on the left doesn't say, we are interested in representing you, we want to take care of you, ordinary Americans, then the bizarre, lunatic rhetoric of a man like Trump is suddenly appealing. We have You're witnessed right. this. The alternative is in the United Kingdom that Jeremy Corbyn, okay. a genuine socialist right. candidate, has come to the front <laughs> and I vote for the first time, and people care What now. were you like on cocaine? <laughs> so, on behalf of all progressives, thank you so much, Russell Brandt, <laughs> for saying what we've tried to communicate to Bill Maher for months now. Um, now, look, I don't agree with Russell Brand on 100% of the issues. I actually disagree with him when he says that you shouldn't vote at all unless politicians have a true message that appeals to you because I think that's harmful because by not voting by just staying home then you're abandoning a lot of down ticket progressives just because you don't like who's running at the top so I would never advocate for someone to not vote but what I would advocate for is that you shouldn't vote for someone unless they speak for you because staying home that's not advantageous for progressives because what that tells members of Congress and presidential candidates is that they don't have to represent us because we're not willing to come out and vote. But if we show them that we are willing to come out and vote no matter what, I think that that actually empowers us. So I don't agree with Russell Brand there, but what he said overall to Bill Maher was really important. Now, Bill Maher, you know, he didn't say this explicitly, but he hinted that the 2016 primaries were completely fair. He said, Bernie was given every opportunity he ran in America. People voted for him, not as many as Hillary. But it's not that simple, Bill. He is denying all the shenanigans that took place in 2016. I mean, the DNC literally colluded with Hillary Clinton before anyone else announced their campaigns. They already basically decided that Hillary Clinton was their candidate. So we had reports from Time, for example, that Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Hillary Clinton colluded with each other to set a limited debate schedule because presumably this would give Hillary Clinton the advantage since at that time she had the most name recognition. And when you look at how the DNC tried to sell these bullshit false narratives about Bernie Sanders to journalists, when you look at how they moved up red states on the primary schedule to benefit Hillary Clinton, because knowing that she's more conservative, she might win these states, um, you know, more so than Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders didn't have a fair shot. In fact, I would argue that it's likely he could have actually won the primary 
if the DNC didn't choose to just brazenly rig it. And that's something that you can't ignore. So by saying that Bernie Sanders had every opportunity, he didn't have every opportunity. And that's just what the DNC did. When you take into account the fact that the mainstream media ignored Bernie Sanders and there was basically a blackout of his campaign, you don't get to say that he had a fair shot. Now, thankfully, Brand actually said something about this. He said the Democratic Party had preferences. They wanted Hillary. They got Hillary and um, she lost. He also talks about how Hillary Clinton was basically maneuvered into that position. And what he was getting at was that the primaries were rigged effectively. That's what he was saying, in my opinion, or what it seemed like he was trying to communicate to Bill Maher. But I think that you just have to come out and say it explicitly. The primaries were rigged. Some people may say that that's hyperbolic, but if you are trying to do everything in your power to give Hillary Clinton this unfair advantage and handicap any of her opponents, if the race itself isn't fair, then that competition is rigged. It's rigged in favor of one candidate over another. I think that's undeniable. So you can say that the term rigged is a little bit too hyperbolic, but it's undeniable that the DNC tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton to the detriment of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And you don't have to take my word for it. You could read the WikiLeaks emails. So another thing here that Brand talked about that I want to touch on is how he came out to vote for Corbyn because Corbyn was offering a truly progressive message. But you know, Bill Maher, you could tell that he didn't want to hear what Russell Brand was saying. So he basically changed the subject and said, well, what were you like uh, on cocaine if you're this fired up off of cocaine? Basically, you know, just, it, it, you know, I don't think he was trying to be rude. I think that clearly him and Russell Brand are friends. So that's just the relationship that they have. They kind of nag on each other. But I mean, Bill, if you really want to have a discussion and figure out why Democrats have been wiped out at every single level of government, not just at the top, then you actually need to fucking listen to what people like Russell Brand are telling you. Now, look, I don't know about Russell Brand's politics, but if you truly are genuinely interested in figuring out why it is that Democrats keep losing, then you can't keep shutting down dialogue when you finally have the opportunity to chat with someone who's trying to tell you why Democrats lost. You can't keep blaming voters for the failures of politicians. Hillary Clinton chose not to campaign in Wisconsin, and she lost Wisconsin. She chose to shun half the base, and a lot of them just stayed home and chose not to support her. So if you really want to get to the bottom of this and figure out why we have Donald Trump, then you need to listen. But all that Bill Maher does is he brings other people on his panel that reinforces his own ideas about why it is that Hillary Clinton lost. And that's because, in his view, uh, the voters failed Hillary Clinton. It's not the other way around. It's not that we knew Hillary Clinton was lying and she took so much money from Wall Street, we knew that she couldn't possibly represent us even if she wanted to because she had already sold out and made a ton of promises to them. I mean, there's an endless amount of reasons you can say as to why Hillary Clinton lost and all of them point to what Hillary Clinton did, not what voters did. So... I'm glad that, you know, Russell Brand was there to actually give Bill Maher some insight as to what ordinary voters were thinking. But I mean, you can't shut him down if you are actually trying to figure out what Democrats can do to reform to appeal to voters. You actually need to listen, Bill. So, you know, on one hand, I'm really glad that Russell Brand told Bill Maher what he needed to hear. But on another hand, you know, he didn't really want to listen. That was apparent. So this was a bittersweet clip. But in the end... You know, if Bill Maher doesn't want to listen, then he doesn't get to keep complaining and, you know, questioning why it's the case that Democrats keep losing. We're trying to tell you, but you don't want to listen, Bill.
Donald Trump shared how he believes we can make America great. One, you kick out all the brown people, bomb lots of countries, and give tax cuts to yourself and the rich. But Bernie Sanders has a different idea. He has a vision as to how we can make America great. And it can't really be, you know, uh, boiled down to just one or two policy ideas. But certainly one part of making America great is to provide all Americans with tuition-free public colleges and universities. So in an op-ed for Vice Impact, Bernie Sanders makes the case for just that. He states, Our nation needs the best educated workforce in the world to succeed in the ever more competitive global economy. Sadly, we are moving further and further away from that goal. As recently as 1995, the United States led the world in college graduation rates, but today we have fallen to 11th place. We are now behind such countries as Japan, South Korea, Canada, England, Ireland, Australia, and Switzerland. 11th place is not the place for a great nation like the United States. Why is this so important? Because 50 years ago, if you had a high school degree, odds were that you could get a decent job and make it into the middle class. But that is no longer the case. While not all middle class jobs in today's economy require post-secondary education, an increasing number do. By 2020, two-thirds of all jobs in the United States will require some education beyond high school. And these jobs tend to pay better, too. Nationally, a worker with an associate's degree will earn about 360000 more over their career than a worker with a high school diploma. And a worker with with a bachelor's degree will earn almost one million more. If it makes sense to get a college degree, why aren't more high school students enrolling in and graduating from college? The main reason is because the ever-rising cost of higher education puts college out of reach for many families or requires students to take on a mountain of debt. It's time to change that dynamic. It's time to make public colleges and universities tuition-free for the working families of our country. It is time for every child to understand that if they study hard and take their school work seriously, they will be able to get a higher education regardless of their family's income. It's time to reduce the outrageous burden of student debt that is weighing down the lives of millions of college graduates. Some 44 million Americans already owe more than $1.3 trillion in student loans, and the vast majority of current college students will graduate deeply in debt. For most graduates, this debt will take many years to repay, which not only impacts their career choices, but also their ability to get married, have kids, or buy a home. In the richest country in the history of the world, everyone who has the desire and the ability should be able to get a college education regardless of their background and ability to pay. That's why I introduced the College for All Act to make public colleges and universities in America tuition-free for families earning $125,000 per year or less, which covers 86% of our population. We're making progress on this issue, but we still have a long way to go. Making America great is not spending tens of billions more on weapon systems or providing trillions in tax breaks for the very rich. Rather, it is having a well-educated population that can compete in the global economy and making it possible that every American, regardless of income, has the opportunity to get the education they need to thrive. So really, you know, when I read that, I... I don't know how you can disagree with any of that because what he's essentially saying here and he's made the, he's made this point explicitly is that a college degree today is comparable to a high school diploma a couple of decades ago so in order to make it this far you've got to work twice as hard you know to get a job and you've got to be burdened by debt and it sucks and as someone with 
thousands upon thousands of dollars, you know, in student loan debt, there were times where I considered not pursuing my education and just dropping out of college because, you know, when I when I really sit back and think about all of the debt I was accruing, it freaked me out. And this is something that provides a lot of millennials with stress because who wants to be burdened with debt when you're just starting out in life? I mean, when you graduate college, you've got the whole world ahead of you. You know what I mean? And to be crippled with debt when you're trying to think about, you know, starting a family, maybe buying a house, even buying a car to commute to and from work, it sucks. So to have a country that takes care of people who want to get educated, this isn't just good for those people, you know, from an individual standpoint, but it's good for all of society because we all benefit from an educated populace. We don't benefit from a non-educated populace. I mean, certainly elites do to a degree because if you keep them stupid and feed them religion then of course they will be more inclined to follow you and not question you but if you educate them then this makes them think for themselves which is why elites don't like it but with that being said you know the time is now to make public colleges and universities tuition free but you have bernie sanders proposing this plan which i think is absolutely amazing and on the other hand, you have the education secretary, Betsy DeVos. She's trying to privatize education as much as she can. And she's also trying to destroy teachers unions. I mean, you have progressives on the left who are really doing everything they can to help the American people. And then you have Republicans who are doing everything they can to fuck over the American people. And you have Democrats kind of caught in the middle where they just they're ambivalent. They don't necessarily care. They're just gonna put in the bare minimum effort to get elected and that's all so i think that what bernie sanders is doing here is absolutely necessary and i think that it's incumbent on progressives like ourselves to do what we can to promote this bill and lobby politicians to get on board and co-sponsor this piece of legislation because it's good this is what we needed i think it's inevitable i think one day we're gonna have to move towards you know a, a tuition-free public college and university system if we want our citizens to be competitive in the global economy but i mean the fight starts now. So, you know, I, I'm very thankful to have an ally like Bernie Sanders on our side fighting for something that we desperately need. But the only thing I ask is that Bernie also includes some form of debt relief for those of us who have already acquired all of this debt. Jill Stein, I really liked her proposal. Just cancel all of student debt. But if you can't get that done, let's do let's cancel 50 percent of it. Even 20 percent of it would be such a huge relief for a lot of us. So, and and look, it's not like we, yes, we did have the choice to take on these loans, but it wasn't an option if we wanted an education. We just had to take on these loans, you know? So you're basically backed into a corner and it's the illusion of choice where technically we're making that decision unilaterally, but the system is set up to where we have to take these loans in order to survive. And even if you, you're poor enough to qualify for, Pell Grants, federal Pell Grants that pay for your tuition at a community college, well, then you still got to work. You still need money. So the student loans might not pay for tuition, but it might pay for you to feed yourself. So, I mean, we've got to have a system where our students aren't crippled with debt. And the way we do that is with Bernie Sanders' plan. It's really the only way to achieve it because if government isn't going to do anything to bring down the cost of tuition because they don't want to subsidize education like they did before, then they've got to do it this way. I think it's the right way to go, and I think that the American people are on board with what Bernie's offering. So for those of you that know me and have watched the show for a while, then you probably know about the fact that I am a gigantic video game nerd. And since this show is about politics, I really don't 
get the opportunity to talk about video games too often. However, I was presented with a very unique opportunity this week when the world of politics and video games converged. So, uh, let's talk about video games for a little bit. So, as you all know, on October 27th, there's a game coming out by Bethesda called Wolfenstein 2 The New Colossus. Now, this is a follow-up to 2014's Wolfenstein The New Order. Now, The New Colossus takes place in America in 1961, and in this alternate version of history, the Nazis actually won World War II, and they took over America. So, the goal in... Wolfenstein the New Colossus is to liberate America from the Nazis in order to spark the second American Revolution. Now in order to promote the video game, the game's official Twitter account tweeted out a new trailer accompanied by the words, Make America Nazi Free Again. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag no more Nazis. Now I'll tell you the response, but first here's the trailer for their game. So the trailer was pretty short that they tweeted out, but I mean, it gives you a look at the game's overall premise, but since the trailer was accompanied by the words, Make America Nazi Free Again, which is obviously a play on Donald Trump's Make America Great Again slogan, well, of course, this triggered Trump flakes on the alt-right, who took to Twitter to voice how offended they were that this game dared to use Donald Trump's slogan. So we had Fifty Shades of Pomo state, oh wow, what a clever marketing trick. So current, so subtly political, wow, go fuck yourselves. And Rick adds, way to make it political, not buying. Rick, this game is inherently political, it's about Nazis. Levi chimes in, <laughs> this is probably my favorite, saying, cool, didn't know Bethesda, <laughs> didn't know Bethesda teamed up with SJWs and Antifa. The, the, the fucking game is about Nazis. It's, it's about, it's about defeating Nazis. Of course, they're anti-fascist, but to suggest that Bethesda teamed up with, with SJW. I can't even dignify that with a response. It's just so idiotic. Uh, I mean, and, and do you not see the irony? You're denouncing SJWs when you're acting just like a triggered little snowflake SJW yourself, dipshit. Now we also have Jeremy State. It's just that there's more Black Power Panther racists in America than Nazis. Not exactly. Alex states, I just like how you phrase this. You guys might want to make a statement that you guys don't hate Trump or freedom. Yes, because Donald Trump and freedom are inextricably linked. If you hate Donald Trump, then of course you hate freedom as well. Yeah, I mean, the outrage police, they're at it again, but as usual, it's on the right and not so much on the left. So look, and what they're angry about really is the use of the make, you know, America Nazi free again. But I'm sorry, Donald Trump won the election. He's the president of the United States and the Make America Great Again slogan has become a part of US pop culture, which is why, you know, when I go to weed shops in Oregon, I see them selling hats that look like the Donald Trump campaign hats, but they say Make America Dank Again and they have a pot leaf. I mean, it's part of American culture. You have to deal with that. Donald Trump won. You got what you wanted, right? So this term is everywhere. And to use that term, it doesn't automatically mean that they're comparing Trump to Nazis. But if they were, then this would be Donald Trump's own goddamn fault. Because if you'll remember correctly, just a couple of months ago, 
It was Donald Trump that refused to condemn neo-Nazis that marched in Charlottesville, and he even defended them. So when the president literally defends and sympathizes with white supremacists and neo-Nazis, you don't get to be triggered by shit like this. Donald Trump brought it upon himself. This was the doing of Donald Trump. This is a game about a Nazi takeover in the United States. And pro-Nazi, pro-white supremacist rhetoric is a problem in this country. So the social media managers of this game in trying to tie it to relevant political themes of our time, they're not being insensitive to Donald Trump supporters. They're just clever at marketing. And guess what? It worked. We're all talking about Wolfenstein, the new Colossus. So look, to... <laughs> To end here, I couldn't pass up an opportunity to one, not only talk about video games, but also um, make fun of triggered right-wing social injustice warriors. I mean, these are two things that I love doing, and certainly, and if I could do both in the same video, then hell yeah, I'm going to jump on that opportunity. But we're going to go ahead and end right there because I got to go and play the first Wolfenstein before the new one comes out because it looks looks pretty cool. Under the guise of expanding internet access to everyone, Facebook is creating a so-called free version of the internet for poor people. And at face value, this may seem like, you know, something that they're doing for altruistic reasons, but you don't have to dig very deep to see that there's a really devious hidden corporate agenda here. So according to Adam Clark Estes of Gizmodo, in recent months, Facebook has been secretly meeting with White House officials and wireless carriers about launching its controversial Free Basics program in the United States. The idea of this actually happening isn't just bad, it's terrifying. Facebook's Free Basics program creates a walled-off internet for poor people, except it doesn't actually give its low-income users free access to the internet. Free Basics gives people access to Facebook's version of the internet. The program is an obvious ploy to win more Facebook users and enable those users to trade their personal data for a cherry-picked set of services provided by big internet companies like Facebook who can afford to play ball. Indeed, millions of Americans lack easy access to the internet. This is a problem, especially as more and more services, including essential government services, exist largely online. But letting Facebook subvert open internet principles and create its own Facebook net in the United States amounts to opening Pandora's box. It would give Facebook access to personal data of millions of people, potentially to profit off of their plight with new ad dollars. There's also the possibility that the free basics program won't always be free since Facebook could always decide to start charging wireless carriers. As the Post reports, Facebook has been targeting lesser known wireless carriers instead of the big boys like Verizon and AT&T. This lets the social network fly under the radar of regulators to a certain extent. It also means that it will be easier to bully these smaller companies when the time comes. So far, Facebook is keeping its dealings under wraps, simply saying in a statement that its mission is to connect the world and we're always exploring ways to do that, including in the United States. Now, Facebook actually got 49 countries to sign on to their Free Basics program, but some of them, once they saw what it was all about, they decided to ban it. Now, this includes India and Egypt. Now, Egypt, they tend to throttle their citizens' access to the internet in general, but when it comes to India, the fact that they decided to ban it when they really could benefit from their citizens having access to the internet, that really goes to show you just how bad of a program this really is because lately, you know, with the attack on net neutrality, we've been forced to confront what 
the internet might look like under no net neutrality rules in a system where large corporations like Comcast and AT&T are able to filter out what we see and don't see on the internet, where they charge us more money for social media packages, for example, where you have to pay an extra five bucks a month if you want to watch, you know, YouTube videos uh, or view Facebook and Twitter. I mean, it, the possibilities are endless. And what Facebook is doing here is they're creating this so-called free internet for poor people. That's not the internet at all. And if Facebook does this, then more companies might start gravitating towards this option where we get to the point where, you know, we, we open Pandora's box, like the article says, and it's a slippery slope where we get to a point where the internet is not free and open at all. It's like the television where you have certain channels and there's only a certain number of websites that are available when currently the internet is free and open to everyone. So if Facebook was really concerned about expanding access of the internet to poor people, then they would just give us the internet in general. Why Why limit it? Why do that? If you truly do care, the goal here is to make sure that everyone has access to the internet. Why do you have to put stipulations on it? Why do you have to make it so that way they're only accessing what you want them to see? I mean, this is, this is incredibly Orwellian. It, Facebook will control everything that these people see. Do you think that Facebook will allow criticism of Facebook? Of course they won't. So there's going to be no news articles criticizing Facebook. Do you think that Facebook would do anything to offend their corporate advertisers on Facebook? Well, of course not. So you're getting this watered-down version of the internet that's heavily restricted, that's Orwellian, that's, quite frankly, is authoritarian and maybe even totalitarian. It's It's just, it's terrifying. Now, I know people are going to argue against what I'm saying because, well, it's free. If they don't want to use it, they don't have to use it. But you don't understand what this does. And allowing Facebook to subvert the principle of net neutrality and create this restricted version of the internet that they that they offer to people for free. And if all of the big companies, you know, there's what, a couple that offer us the internet, if they all start doing this, then the internet's gone as we know it. And it's already bad enough that the internet is under attack. You know, internet freedom is under attack by Ajit Pai and the FCC. They want to roll back Title II net neutrality regulations and the internet is already you know it looks like it's going to be a less free and open place we don't need facebook coming in and making it even less free and open so again if they really cared about expanding the internet to poor people and to rural areas then just you know if you can offer them the internet why offer them your shitty watered down version version of it well, they have an agenda. They want to control what you see. They want to advertise to you. They want to use your data and they want to make sure that they can sell, you know, the best ads to advertisers and profit heavily from it. It's so devious. It's it's disgusting. So, you know, don't buy anything that they're selling here because they're not doing this for altruistic reasons. You know, anytime you see a corporation trying to control content that you see and filter information that you see, you immediately should have that red flag go off in your head because something's up here. And there's this is no different here. So more and more, we're beginning to see a lot of creators on YouTube speak out against what I like to call the increasing corporatization of YouTube, where large multinational corporations are creeping into the website and taking over. Because if you just look at YouTube from a couple of years ago, it was dominated by creators, large and small. But today, that's not necessarily the case. So, I mean, if you just look at YouTube's trending page, this is what I pulled up today. You see a video from the WWE. So, we have Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Late Night with uh, Seth Meyers. Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. You also see videos from the NFL. 
you see a lot of Hollywood movie trailers trending. You see, you know, The View, a clip from The View, more from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. You see, I mean, gigantic corporations on here, Amazon Video. You see The Ellen Show. You get the point. But it's not as though the presence of these corporations on YouTube is inherently bad, but it's still discouraging seeing that this was a creative space for normal people. And more and more, you see large corporations promote, promoting, you know, their agenda and their clips on YouTube now, and I would be fine with their presence if they were treated the same as creators, if they were forced to compete with us and creators weren't handicapped at the behest of large corporations, but that's not the case. These large corporations, they come on YouTube and they are treated better than normal creators. And this is demonstrated in a tweet to YouTube by fellow YouTuber Casey Neistat, who had a video about the Las Vegas shooting that was demonetized. Now, in a statement to YouTube, he states, literally a video about charity, where I state all AdSense is going to that charity, YouTube says not suitable for advertisers. Now, YouTube then responded to Casey Neistat saying, we love what you're doing to help, but no matter the intent, our policy is to not run ads on videos about tragedies, because presumably they don't want to profit off of tragedy. So what they're trying to communicate to us is that they're doing this for altruistic reasons and that they don't think that it is morally right to monetize videos where you talk about tragedies and basically make money off of the deaths of other people. That's basically what they're trying to imply here, but it's not true because as Philip DeFranco puts it, who is another fellow YouTuber, their excuse was complete and utter bullshit because he tweeted out to YouTube, Dear YouTube and Team YouTube, your response is bullshit. It's not true. People are tired of this. Be better. Now, he demonstrates that this is the case by showing an ad being played over a video about the Las Vegas shooting that was posted by Jimmy Kimmel's show. We have a very obvious double standard here because we have a normal creator on this platform like Casey Neistat talking about the Las Vegas tragedy and monetizing it as a means of helping the victims. But he gets demonetized, whereas Jimmy Kimmel... He doesn't get demonetized. Now, in response to this sheer level of hypocrisy, this is what YouTube had to say. Oh, that's right. I actually don't have a clip from a YouTube executive saying anything about this because they didn't have anything to say. There's nothing meaningful that they could possibly say that would make themselves look any better in this situation. And it's not like they chose to stop any ads from playing on Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, I looked before I went on air. They're still playing ads on this particular clip. Now, individuals came to YouTube's defense here, arguing that the ads that we saw on Jimmy Kimmel's video and even Trevor Noah's video are actually not technically placed by YouTube's AdSense program and that those ads were placed by ABC unilaterally, who chose specifically to buy ad space before the Jimmy Kimmel show. Now, this is a deal that was struck back in 2015 with ABC and YouTube because according to the Wall Street Journal, to date, clips from Mr. Kimmel's show on YouTube have run ad-free because ABC, like many other big media companies, didn't like the idea that YouTube takes a 45% cut of ad revenue generated by its partners. So in other words, since ABC didn't like how big of a cut YouTube was taking from traditional AdSense pre-roll ads, they struck their own deal to presumably bypass AdSense altogether. But even though people are using that deal to defend YouTube, it still doesn't make YouTube look any better because YouTube chose 
to take action against Casey Neistat and demonetize his video, whereas they didn't take that same action against Jimmy Kimmel and demonetize his clip. So even if it's the case that Google didn't insert their own AdSense over this particular clip, well, they're not choosing to stop ads from running. I mean, they can still do that, right? Do they not have control over their own website? So by allowing ads to go on on Jimmy Kimmel's video, regardless if it was placed by AdSense or not, that's still a double standard. You're still holding these big multi-million dollar companies like ABC to a different standard than ordinary YouTubers like Casey Neistat. So YouTube is willing to make an exception when it comes to old media, but for us ordinary creators, they're not budging. And coming from a channel that has yet to fully recover from the YouTube adpocalypse of 2017, YouTube is driving away a lot of really talented creators. Creators that I watch and support, creators that are offering something different that we actually seek out because I mean we're not coming on YouTube to see the same shit we could watch on television we're coming to YouTube to hear alternative voices I don't come on YouTube to watch Jimmy Kimmel I come on YouTube to watch Boogie 2988 and H3H3 and Secular Talk and the Young Turks I don't care about what ABC and HBO has to offer and this week, you know, I, I'm also pissed off because this week I found out that there was another handful of videos on my channel that were demonetized. And right before I went on the air here, David Dole announced that half of his channel has basically been demonetized by YouTube. So YouTube is shitting all over its ordinary creators when they should be respecting us because we're the ones that make them money. Now look, I understand that YouTube is in a very difficult predicament after the adpocalypse because they want to do everything they can to entice those advertisers to come back to the platform after they left. But what they're doing here is incredibly arbitrary and they have to at least offer a response to creators. If you're not going to treat us differently, I mean, if you're not going to treat us the same as old media, then you at least need to explain to us. I think we deserve an explanation because without us, YouTube wouldn't exist. We make money for YouTube, right? It's not just that we're getting this money. They're taking 45% of our ad revenue, which is a big percentage. So I think that they owe it to us because without us, YouTube wouldn't exist. But they don't want to even respond to these double standards that are just so infuriating. I mean, it's really, it's frustrating. And at the same time, you know, they're promoting uh, their own YouTube TV service. So you can get on YouTube and watch the television shows you came on YouTube to initially avoid. The minute a real competitor to YouTube jumps on board, then... I think I'm going to have no choice but to migrate to that platform because YouTube has just shown that they're not friendly to creators any longer. It's not an environment that, you know, uh, creates growth. They just care about these large companies that already have millions of dollars, you know, and they're showing it, you know, when they choose to monetize a Jimmy Kimmel video, but demonetize a Casey Neistat video. It's just so frustrating. So I wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about a new project that I've been working on for quite some time, and it is called Establishment Exiles. So the Establishment Exiles is a podcast featuring myself, Ron Placone from The Jimmy Dore Show, Kevin Asani, Ashley Hudson, Alicia O'Neill, and Brittany Sneers, and together, basically, we talk shit about the American political establishment, you know, and it's something that we all kind of created together. This was formed by myself, Kevin, and Alisi. And the podcast actually just launched 
on Monday. And it's something that we're super excited about. So I wanted to let you all know about this because I think that if you watch shows like the Jimmy Dore show, like Humanist Report, I think you will like this particular podcast. Now, with the first episode, of course, there is some technical issues. The audio quality isn't quite up to par with you know, the humanist report, but just know that we're working on that and we're trying to make sure that the audio is good, you know, in, in trying to create a podcast where you have six people from around the country, you know, um, coming together, you really have to make sure that the audio quality is up to snuff and that's a difficult task. So we are definitely working on that. Um, and we're trying to use a platform where the audio is, is clear. So, you know, that that's the struggle. But for now, I think that when it comes to content, we have a really amazing first episode. I thought that it was just great. We planned to just do the introduction, but we ended up getting into a bunch of, you know, political topics. So please, please check it out. You know, I'm super excited about it. I've been working on this with, you know, Kevin and Alisi, and we brought in, you know, the others for quite some time. You know, it, it's really exciting. So I hope you guys enjoy this. It will be available on iTunes, um, but now it's up on Podbean. So I'll have the link down below. So, hey, Enjoy, and don't forget to support us by following us on Twitter and Facebook. First of all, I love podcasts, okay? But there's one podcast I think it's just terrible, okay? There's no talent. It's called The Establishment Exiles. I don't even know what that means, okay? It's a total ripoff of Chapo Trap House, okay? Pathetic. It's going to be a complete failure, believe me. Ron is a total loser, Kevin and Brittany, they produce more fake news than CNN. Can you believe that? Mike is terrible, and nobody watches the Humanist Report, okay? Elise is a total wacko. She scares me. And let me tell you about Ashley, folks. She's a total fraud. Very sad, okay? Um, so what I'll say is liberals, they're perfectly content with the system they're just not happy with the person in, in charge so with them it would be fine as yeah. long as hillary's in charge or obama's in charge but the systemic structure is the yeah. same yeah. and yeah. injustices are the same but it's like we just don't like the, the face of it right now constantly you're like i want to impeach them i want to impeach them. i want to impeach them like what the yeah. fuck do you realize you get mike pence and yeah. not Ray yeah. Biden? Yeah. Get all these other crazy lunatic motherfuckers? Right. Yes. The line of succession just gets worse. It does. Yes, not better. Yeah, and let's but let's be let's be real. System. It's not about the system. Let's, let's be real. We're, I mean, under Obama, we were bombing seven different countries. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. And of course, as usual, I want to send a special shout out to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show not just to survive, but also to thrive in a climate on YouTube where they don't really care about regular content creators and we're not a multi-million dollar company, so they don't care about us. <laughs> so, you know, without you guys... It would be much more difficult to do this show. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'll see you all next week. This was probably a pretty long episode with lots of topics, typically more than usual. But, you know, I hope that you guys liked it. So take care.